on Psalms 22. We will be reading verses 1 through 3 and then 19 through 28. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why so far from helping me, so far from my anguished cries? My God, by day I call to you, but you don't answer. Likewise at night, but I get no relief. Nevertheless, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. They divide my garments, we're now at verse 19. They divide my garments among them, my clothing they throw dice. But you, Adonai, don't stay far away. My strength, come quickly to help me. Rescue me from the sword. My life from the power of the dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth. You have answered me from the wild bull's horns. I will proclaim your name to my kinsmen. Right here in the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear Adonai, praise him. All descendants of Yaakov, glorify him. All descendants of Israel, Stand in awe of him, for he has not despised nor abhorred the poverty of the poor. He did not hide his face from him, but listened to his cry. Because of you, I will give praise to the great assembly. I will fulfill my vows in the sight of those who fear him. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Adonai will praise him. Your hearts will enjoy life forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Adonai. All the clans of the nation will worship in your presence. For the kingdom belongs to Adonai, and he rules the nations. Thank you, Paula. This is somewhat, uh, I wanted to begin with a bit of a confession time. No, it's not anything heinous. Um, it's been a hard week, and um, having talked to enough folks, I know that I don't stand alone. Um, and if you were to march a remembrance, you have heard part of my testimony, my journey, and I don't want to repeat it, it's just that it, it seems that this year the Lord has taken me to a deeper level. And you know how that is. It isn't always fun. Um, somewhat schizoid, you know, the, the old Jewish on one hand, on the other hand. Um, on one hand... My goal in life is to welcome God to go deeper um, into my life and to do his redemptive work so that there's more of him and less of me. Uh, this is not narcissistic, you know, um, simply desire to have more of God's presence in my life. So I welcome that. On the other hand, as you can imagine... <coughs> This is by no means <coughs> uh, pleasant. 
sometimes, and particularly for me as a child of a survivor, uh, growing up in Israel, hearing about the Shoah, the Holocaust, um, in every, from every imaginable medium, <clears throat> and it seemed like this year the Lord has wanted to take me deeper um, and um, I welcome that. I welcome that not just for myself, but I want to be used as the Lord's instrument of comfort to those who are also hurting. And as you can imagine, this is not only about the Shoah, about the Holocaust. What I found <coughs> as I have shared uh, my heart, shared from Scripture, this message, I have found that people resonate on all kinds of levels from all kinds of backgrounds, not necessarily Jewish. Um, because the truth is, we all suffer. We all suffer. Um, and unfortunately, uh, the culture that we live in poo-poos that, um, including the culture of believers that have some real foolish, in my mind, very foolish notions of what one needs to do about suffering. And um, you're well aware of the excesses of the prosperity teaching. But uh, we also handle suffering in other ways that are not scriptural. Um, one is we see suffering as God's punishment. You know, um, typical misunderstanding. Um, if you were bad as a kid, you got punished, you had to pay consequences. And so we're convinced that when we go through suffering, it is because um, God chooses to punish us. Um, sometimes there's also the unbiblical notion that our suffering promotes greater spirituality in our life. And the answer to that, of course, is yes and no, depending how we approach it. Uh, some folks would go even so far as to say that suffering uh, promotes atonement in our life. It, it, it kind of helps us... Um, it helps us because when, when we commit sins and we suffer, then there's uh, equal payment. Well, the truth is there isn't. Uh, I hope everybody here knows that if God Almighty was to punish us according to what we deserve, we would be on an elevator going straight down. Um, And also the notion that if we do things right, if we pray right, if we serve God right, if we are kind to our fellow man, it's blah, 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 and more blah, that somehow God would put us in a bubble. And the answer to that is yes and no. Sometimes he chooses to do that. We find all kinds of examples in Scripture 
where people were in a bubble, uh, where it seemed, uh, you know, like the children of Israel in, in Goshen. Um, but there are all kinds of other examples where the Lord in his wisdom and his plan sees fit to allow or sometimes even lead his people into suffering. Remember, folks, that Ruach HaKodesh um, specifically drove Yeshua into the desert to be tempted. And that sometimes God leads us into the desert not because he hates us or wants to make us suffer, but it's all part of his greater plans for us. And um, yet, I don't think anybody here is a masochist. At least I know I'm not. I don't particularly enjoy pain. And uh, if you talk to my wife, she'll tell you I don't suffer silently. Um, but over time you learn that if God is in control, who Allah say, if you really believe that, that somehow he is at work in the midst of the suffering. At times when things just do not add up, when things just do not make a particle of sense, and this passage that we're looking at is an example. If, if David was the one who wrote it, then you can see that David is here at wit's end. So I wanted to pause for just a minute and ask the Lord to speak to us and impart to us the things that we need to receive. Lord God... We thank you for your amazing love for us. And we thank you, Lord, for how you work with us at times, Lord, when your presence is very much a reality, at times, Lord, when you choose to withdraw, Lord, in order to encourage us to seek you more fully. And Lord God, we pray for eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord, what it is that you're saying to us in this challenging passage. We pray, Lord, give us hearts that are eager to receive your word and eager, Lord God, to follow and to obey you. We ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen. We are told not to ask why questions. You know, and, and the um, silly statement to that effect is that um, to why questions, God would say, why not? And here the psalmist is crying out to God um, in great desperation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're not quite sure of what's going on um, in, in, in the psalmist situation. 
But the truth is, if you've read David's story, you know that his life was anything but a picnic. Um, as a teenager, he is anointed. Um, here's, a, here's a young fellow who is minding his business, taking care of his father's sheep, strumming his guitar on, on the hills. His liar. <coughs> um, then all of a sudden he is hauled into the family, he is anointed uh, by Samuel, the prophet of all Israel. And he fights Goliath, he becomes a champion of Israel because he knocks out the big bully, Goliath. And people compose songs and sing about him. Saul slayed his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. Then he gets to marry the king's daughter. I mean, you're talking about fantasy here. Pretty heady stuff. And then shortly after that, it seems like everything caves in. And to use our vernacular, it seems to go to hell in the handbasket. Um... The king tries to skewer him a couple times. Um, his wife has to lower him in a basket in order to escape the king's assassins. The people that help him, Aviatar the priest, get slaughtered by Saul's men. Then probably one of the uh, lowest points is when he has to hide with the Philistines, Israel's enemies. And they find out, they out him in a sense, find out about his past and things get hot and he plays like he is Mishugi. You know, he does one of these <laughs> and they chase him away. And um, even his own men, you know, he gathers a bunch of misfits uh, what w we would be tempted to call losers, and even those guys want to kill him at some point because their families were abducted. And so you can understand that there were times in those years, not quite sure how long it was, probably at least 10 years, there were times when David's self-esteem, although he... I'm sure didn't use 21st century psychobabble. But his sense of self-worth hit, hit bottom. And I would say if you've lived long enough, probably even you guys, you come to a point where you, where you say, you know, I am somewhere between uh, a slug and an earthworm. That's how I feel today. And that's what David says, I'm a worm. I'm a worm and not a man. Boy, that describes it pretty well, doesn't it, about how he is feeling low. And uh, you know how it is. Um, when you're feeling low, more often than not, people are not going to come by and say, oh, the, the, there, there, things are okay. What often happens is people will look at you and say, yeah, you got what you deserved, you slug. And that apparently is what's happening in this particular scenario. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their head.
you say, well, David, the man of God, should have been strong. He should have stood up to it and said, God is for me. Who can be against me, etc., etc.? Yes and no. There are times when we are strengthened and are able to do that. Reality is, folks, God made us as social creatures. And none of us live in a vacuum. None of us function in a situation where no one says to us at any point in time, you did great. You're doing good. I like what you're doing. This is good stuff. I mean, part of how we function is by the cues that we get from other folks, right? And um, for David, all that he is getting, humanly speaking, is bad stuff, you know? Um, He's an outlaw being chased by by, by Saul's posses. He's a rebel. And people look at him and accuse him of being less than a man. Why? Because he leans on God as as a crutch. He trusts the Lord. Verse 8, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. So you can understand that whatever was taking place here, and there were a number of different possible scenarios, whatever is happening here... David feels like he is about to be consumed by alligators. Now, I don't know if you've been close enough to alligators. Joy and I went to an alligator farm in uh, Alamosa uh, where people can sign up for gator wrestling. That one just boggles my mind. And uh, we stood there. And here you have these monsters. I mean, they are big, big monsters, 14, 20-foot creatures, and they're not particularly friendly. Uh, As as the uh, attendant came and gave them some food, some fish, they just out and snap, and uh, Joy and I stood there and we, okay, we want to be, we want to keep our distance from these guys. Um, so David is feeling like he is not able to do that because the, the, the words that he's using here a whole bunch of different ways suggest that he is surrounded and when you're surrounded you can't really bail out you can't really back out verse 12 many bulls surrounded me strong bulls of Bashan encircled me Verse 13, roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. Wild dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. Now again remember, folks, that at least earlier in his life, David came up against a lion and a bear. And, and he, he did all right. In this situation, it is just coming in waves. And you know, you know what that's like sometimes. You experience situations where it seemed like something comes, and then something else comes, and then something else comes, and then things come at you like a tsunami. And you get to a point where it, it is just overloaded. And several of the verses look like 
they are beyond what could have happened to David physically, but emotionally, it looks like he felt every part of it. Look at verse 14 and 15. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It's melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Then you lay me in the dust of death. That's pretty grim. That's pretty grim. Again, we don't understand the literal situation for David, but you can understand that at this point, he's lower than low. Now, we have enough historical and medical evidence to know that the language that's spoken of here uh, describes crucifixion. Uh, the bones are, are separated out of joint. Uh, the victim is severely dehydrated. The victim suffers excruciating pain because they're not able to breathe properly. They have to try and raise themselves up in order to get the proper breath. And over a period of time, in the heat, you can understand how, how, how severe of a torment this is and um, as is typically the case people are not crucified somewhere in a uh, um, far away uh, scenario far away from people typically you have spectators now that's something I, I, I could just never get my arms around you know if you've seen movies about the wild west how that when there was a hanging that was a, a major, a major celebration. You know, families came with their picnic baskets to, to watch the person, and you go, "Hello, what's wrong with you guys?" Uh, but apparently, this is something that took place in the crucifixion, and apparently took place in this scenario. Um, and by the way, one of the uh, just a word here in verse sixteen. Some translations have it as they have pierced my hands and feet and other translations have it as a lion, my hands and feet. And if I had time, I would go into the on one hand, on the other, other hand for that. Uh, let me just point out that the, that the difference in Hebrew is one little extension on, on the letter from a yod to a vav. Um, regardless, um, it really d doesn't change the, 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 the meaning of what's taking place here. Notice that he is referring to lions several times and, and dogs several times. And uh, if you've been in a situation where um, a nasty dog has, has been snarling at you and trying to get you, and if you can... Imagine a whole bunch of them. You, you get the picture here. Um, but for David, for the psalmist, the worst part of this was not even the, um, the, the suffering because of, of people about to kill him, but some kind of a separation between himself and God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
David is puzzled by the fact that the presence of God that was normally very much a part of him seems to be absent. And by the way, the rabbis describe, or some rabbis describe the Holocaust, the Shoah, as being characterized by the absence of the presence of God. God chose to hide himself from the nation of Israel during the Shoah. David doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. He says, Lord, in verse 9 and 10, you have brought me out of the womb. In other words, you've been my help even when I was a fetus. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. In other words, he's saying, God, I have learned to depend on you and you seem to be elsewhere. And you, you helped me when I was facing the lion, the bear, and Goliath, etc., etc. And then he goes on to say, Lord, furthermore, you have been there for our people. Back to verse 4 and 5. In you, our fathers put their trust. They trusted you and you delivered them. They cried to you and they were saved. In you, they trusted they were not disappointed. There, there seems to be no relief from this crisis, and the worst part of it is that God seems to be absent. Now, that's a perception. It's a perception that God is not there. But I know we have all experienced that perception during cr- critical times when it seems like we have done everything we knew how to do and we've cried out to God and, and, and we were hopeful and there doesn't seem to be much of a connection with the Almighty God, something that we have learned to depend on. And so, of course, we try to do all kinds of things to figure out what we did wrong and is God angry at me and et cetera, et cetera. Again, it's a perception, folks. It's not reality. Because God hasn't gone, he hasn't stepped onto a uh, spaceship and gone to a different quadrant of the universe. Yeshua said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's, by the way, a principle that we find not only in the New Testament, we find it earlier on in the Tanakh in the Old Testament. That's part of the covenant relationship between God and his people. That part of their relationship means that God is saying to his people, because you are in this covenant relationship with me, I'm not going to bail on you. I'm tempted to sometimes. You do awful stupid things. Not you guys. And so you give me all kinds of reasons to, but I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I'm committed. People's exhibit A of, of that, of course, is Israel. 
in Jeremiah 31, where we see the covenant statement where the Lord said, they broke my covenant even though I was a husband to them, yet I'm going to make a new covenant. So the Lord is very much there. Why do we have this perception that he's not? And I'm, I'm convinced that a major reason for that is that in our desperation, then we learn to wait on God even more than we have learned to before. And we learn the meaning of a word that which we all hate, that is patience and waiting. And God goes deep with us and we grow into maturity in our relationship with Him. Because we learn the simple fact that even though things seem to, to be going downhill, and even though it seems like God isn't answering, He is not left. He is very much part of the scene. And He is very much in charge and controlling what's taking place. Folks, in the last 20-some years, the conviction of God's sovereignty has become the bedrock of my life. I hope it has for you too. Because we go through all kinds of experiences that causes us to go into a, a tailspin unless we have this basic conviction that God is very much in charge. And yes, we can relate to the psalmist. We can relate to the people of the Shoah, the victims who went to the gas chambers uh, reciting the Shema and reciting Anima Amin, Be'emunah Shlema, Be'biata Mashiach. I believe in perfect faith in the coming of the Messiah. These are things that are beyond our understanding, folks. And there are things in our life that we don't understand. And it's okay to say, I don't get it. I don't understand. And sometimes when we ask the Lord for explanations, He may see fit to give us the explanations, and sometimes He will not. I saw this wonderful quote by a scholar named Don Carson who said that until the curtain drops, in other words, until the end of time, we live in ambiguities when we don't know where we don't know the mind of God. And we dare not ask, act as if God owes us detailed explanation. He wants our trust, not so much our understanding. This is part of our coming to terms with who God is and learning to embrace His sovereign control and His grace for us. And as we'll see in just a few a moment or so, that is what takes place here with the psalmist. And as you read the Psalms, you see this over and over and over again, the same kind of a process that starts out with, Lord, where are you? And of course, as we have just completed 
the season of the Pesach, the Passover, and Yom HaTchiyah, the resurrection, we of course were thinking about Yeshua's atoning death and resurrection. And specifically here, uh, in Matthew 27, we see that Yeshua cries out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, Aramaic, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that point, he was already hanging on the cross for three hours in the heat. And without going into great detail, if you have read about crucifixion, you know that the brutality of it and the abuse that led up to it. And, and like the writer for Yeshua, the worst part of the experience was separation from the Father, where there was absolute unity, absolute 24-7 unity. And at that point, because of our sin, a wall came down between Yeshua and the Father. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. Yeah, you can read books about it and people philosophize and come up with all kinds of theology to explain it. At the end of the day, you have to say it is a mystery. And what we see with the psalmist, we also see with Yeshua. Even though you have this sense of separation, at some point something kicks in and the reality of what really is going on takes place. And the grasp that, that God is really there. Yeshua, for example, goes on to say, forgive them for they know not what they do. Into your hands I commit my soul. Who is he talking to? So even though there was this sense of separation, awful separation, Yeshua recognized that the Father was, that the presence of, of the Father was there as you see with the psalmist. Somehow the reality kicks in that God is there. Somehow. And again, that's part of the mystery. Um... Somehow, even though the psalmist says, Lord, where are you? You're not doing anything. At some point, he comes back and says, in verse 11, do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there's no one to help. In other words, you are the one and only recourse. I have, I have absolutely no one to go to. Come quickly, verse 19, O Lord, do not be far from me. Come quickly to help me. Verse 20, deliver my life from the sword. So basically what the psalmist is doing, he is saying, even though at some level it feels right at this moment that you are totally away from me, somehow... Something in him changes and he realizes that God really is there and then he needs to call out to God for his help. And what's more, he has a basic confidence that God will in fact come through. He expects 
to be able to praise and worship God. He's, he expects to be able to brag about God to people. I will declare your name to my brothers in the large crowd. I will praise you. This is verse 22, chapter tw uh, 22. Verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Verse 25, for, verse 24, for he has not despised or disdain the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but listened to his cry for help. Part of the process, somehow, is that a, a light bulb goes on in the psalmist, psalmist's mind as it seems to somehow do likewise with Yeshua, as I hope it does with all of us. That at some point we get the fact that even though things feel absolutely lousy and we wonder if the, Lord if the Lord knows, if He cares, if He's around, at some point we come back to the truth that forms the bedrock for us, the truth of the Word of God. Because we know that He will not crush the bruised reed. He will not put out the flaming wick. He is caring for the suffering of people. And furthermore, because of this covenant relationship we have with him, we know that in his time, in his way, somehow he will bring about the movement of events and changes so that some kind of relief takes place. And perhaps circumstances don't change. God doesn't guarantee that we will have awesome circumstances from the time we say, I do to him. What has to change is what's internal, what's in our hearts. Because ultimately, that's what life is about. It's not so much that everything is wonderful. Because it often isn't. In fact, Scripture tells us that suffering is a normal part of a believer's life. I don't think you'll find that in the uh, Bible uh, promise book. All those who live godly will suffer. Uh, I don't think so. And part of reality, folks, as you hear from time to time from a number of us here, is that suffering provides a platform for God to act. God uses suffering for the good to shape and conform us into the image of His Son. Suffering is what God uses to work redemptively in us. You know, to get to the, um, to the level of the paid dirt, you know, where the gold is, God has to go deep with us. And yes, it is painful. 
But at the end of the day, somehow when, when God gets done with a particular segment, you're able to step back and say, okay, Lord, that wasn't fun, but what just took place was awesome. And, and I, I have no regrets about that. You see that over and over and over and over again in the book of Psalms and other places in Scripture. The crises that we all face where we uh, feel lousy about ourselves, where people come in and, and uh, want to help us with that, you know, by saying, oh yeah, you, you're right, you, you are somewhere between dirt and, and a slug. And for some reason, you don't feel the presence of God. You know, for me this week, th this has been the way, part of the struggle with the Shoah. So the Lord allows that. In fact, sometimes He custom designs these kinds of circumstances in order to, to do His redemptive work. And we learn that God does wonderful things through awesome things through the period of pain and suffering. And because of that, then we learn to be compassionate people and empathic people who don't rush to give everybody easy answers. But we learn to be like Job's friends at the very beginning. Remember the very beginning, if you read the book of Job, Job talks about his experiences and his friends sit there and they shut up and they cry with him. Then, of course, at some point they become convinced that they know it all and they rush to judgment and they proceed to tell him everything he needs to know about what's wrong with him. You know, uh, I imagine you've experienced the second part of the Friends of Job scenario. God doesn't want us to go there. He wants us to be friends of Job at the very beginning. Where we learn, to, because we understand what suffering is about, we learn that there are no simple answers. We learn that the only one who has the entire picture is God Almighty. That you and I have snatches of, of understanding of reality of what things really look like. And we learn to pull our punches instead of rushing in and, and, and giving opinion. Why? Because God has gone and worked deeply in us. And pattern that we find here, I hope, is an example and a model for all of us to follow. You notice that the psalmist goes back and says, Lord, You've been my God from the time I was in my mother's belly. And from the time I had enough conscience, I had learned to trust in you, and you have proven yourself to me, and you've proven yourself to my people. And you take that as first fruits and say, Lord, I have this to lean on. And furthermore, I have experienced and I know who you are, that you are the Redeemer, 
And the book of Hebrews tells us over and over and over again that Yeshua suffered because of that. He understands our suffering because, and he's a compassionate and merciful high priest. And because of that, we know we can come and, and seek God knowing that we are understood and that we experience his, the results of his intercessory ministry. And because of that, we experience the redemption. God goes deep with us. We experience a greater measure of shalom, peace, and wholeness. And we connect with him because we get who God is, what he does in suffering, and we get the fact that we suffer just like Yeshua did. And we have that special strengthened kind of a bond. These are good things, folks, that God does with us. And he doesn't wrap us across the knuckles when we cry out in desperation as long as it doesn't stop there. As long as it goes to the next, to the next step where we remember what has taken place with us when we re remember who the Lord is. And then we experience his redemption. Let's pray. And would you stand, please? We stand before you, Lord, and we are immensely grateful, Lord, that you attempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. Lord, that we can come to you knowing that we are understood, that you're not a stranger to us, that somehow, mysteriously, in our suffering, you suffer and you grieve. We thank you, Lord God, for your faithfulness, that you persevere with us, that you don't bail out when we look highly unspiritual. And thank you, Lord God, above all, that you are firmly in control. We thank you, Lord God, for your plans and purposes. Your plans for good and not for evil. I pray for each one of us, Lord. You know, at, at what point in the journey we are, we pray, Lord God, for that special measure of grace Eyes of faith, Lord God, to see, your, to see you at work. To recognize you, Lord, and to praise you. Take our, take our eyes, Lord, off our circumstances. Put them firmly on you, Lord. We pray, Lord God, that you would receive much honor and glory, Lord God, in our willingness to listen and to obey you 
and welcome to transformation. We ask this in the name of Yeshua. Amen.